Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of the book of Proverbs. We're going to be wrapping up the address to sons, plural, one of one, which was, uh, oh, excuse me, excuse me. We're going to be wrapping up the fifth address to a son, which was chapter 4, verse 10 through 19. So we'll finish that section. And then we'll be moving on to the sixth address, uh, chapter 4, verse 20 and following. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We ended this fifth address to a son, again, chapter 4, verse 10 through 19, and this is the fifth address to a son of 10 in total. And as we got to the end of this, we saw the wisdom of the Holy Spirit shining through, who even through the pen of Solomon, though Solomon himself could not have been fully aware of these things, shows us a type and foreshadowing of the covenant that our Lord Jesus comes to bring, namely that covenant of his body and his blood, his body in the bread, his blood in the wine. So if you look at 17, verse 17 of chapter 4, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. And you can see how this is contrasted with our Lord who brings not a bread of wickedness or wine of violence, but a bread that is his wholesome life-giving body and a wine that is his sin-atoning blood. And of course, in order to give his body and his blood, he himself experiences wickedness and violence, absorbs it, overcomes it, transforms that which is in and of itself evil into something that is for us and for all mankind profoundly good. Similarly, as we go into 18 and 19, now this is well-worn paths in the tradition of wisdom literature as we have seen. And as we will continue to see if we were to progress chronologically from the time of Solomon forward, and that is the theme of the path of light and the path of darkness. But in the early church especially, because Jesus says that he is the light of the world, And then he also says to his disciples, you, plural, are the light of the world. Becoming a disciple of Christ and being joined with him in baptism is described even as early as the first couple of centuries as enlightenment. How are we transformed from sons of darkness into sons of light? Well, we become sons of God who is light through baptism. And thus we become sons of light for he is light. And thus we are enlightened. And we then walk on the path of light, eschewing the path of darkness. 
So you can see how these themes are then taken up in the Gospels themselves, in the teaching of Jesus himself, and then in the early church's understanding of baptism. And really, truthfully, it continues to be our understanding today. It's just not frequently talked about. By enlightenment, we don't mean, of course, you know, sitting in a room with the lights off with your eyes closed, you know, putting your fingers in a certain position like spiritual antennae and then suddenly, bong, you receive enlightenment. That's not what we're talking about. Enlightenment is to receive Christ. And, of course, that gives us opportunity to reflect on the nature of the wisdom of Proverbs. It's not wisdom in the abstract that we are learning, but it's wisdom that is Christ that we are learning. So, where you have language of pay attention to, grasp hold of, be attentive to, guard, keep, do not let be taken from you, all of these things referring to wisdom, the principle is first and foremost that this is Christ. Now, we can think of that in generically, so to speak, the person of Christ, and then more concretely, it's in the word that Christ speaks, and of course, because the sacraments that he gives have as their core and center also his word, it is word and sacrament that we are instructed to bind ourselves to. This is the way of wisdom, the way of light in the midst of a world that is dark. So again, we reflect on these themes at verse 18 and 19, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. And there's a kind of progression that you see as one follows the course of wisdom and becomes more and more acquainted with its ways. And again, we're talking about Jesus and more and more acquainted with his ways. Then one grows and shines brighter and brighter and participates in this life, uh, this light as it comes into its own fullness. Okay, contrasting that, the way of the wicked... Again, at the source of this would be to turn away from Christ, more concretely, to turn away from his word. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So there is a double curse hidden in there. Not only do they stumble, which is bad enough, but they don't even know over what they stumble. So there's a duality or a double nature there. Uh, there's no chance of uh, removing that obstacle. One doesn't even know that that is an obstacle. And this, again, in a, a granted a, a not very specific way at this point, indicates to us one more major principle that we've seen up to this point in the text, and that is that Wickedness is foolishness, and foolishness is wickedness. You may not see it right away. and that's the, that's the challenge, because the Lord's word presents itself to us as foolishness, but it is in truth wisdom. 
You can think of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where this is spelled out for us. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Paul playing with this theme that God's wisdom always presents itself to the fallen human mind as foolishness. It must be believed and only then can it be perceived to be true and in fact wisdom. Contrary to that, wickedness always presents itself as in fact being wise. Shrewd, pragmatic, what makes sense. Only later on as it bears its fruit can one possibly realize that that wickedness is in fact foolishness. So we can see this this nature, like these dynamics go all the way back to the original sin, of course, don't they? You can see Eve looking at the fruit, and God has said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But she looks upon it and sees that it is good for food. So God is telling her this is foolish, don't eat it. And her eyes and senses are telling her this is good for food, eat it. So you've got that discrepancy. And that discrepancy continues along because God desires to simply be believed. Okay, and then also what I think we can do with this, with this, and I hinted at this maybe before, is if you hold firm to the simple, plain truth of God's word, you can do so in good conscience, despite the whole world mocking you and laughing at you for being some sort of backwoods, fundamentalist, uh, clueless Christian. Okay. Simply because you know that God's word always presents itself as foolishness to the world, even though it is profoundest wisdom, and the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the wise, is in fact foolishness insofar as it contradicts Christ's word. And so you can cling to that, and then as you are met with challenges and attacks that you know are contrary to God's word, but you yourself might not know how to overcome those arguments, you can simply, from the outset, not be overly concerned with them because you can know from the outset that they are, in fact, foolish. You just don't know how to show them as such yet. But as you pray and study and think, God will reveal that unto you as well. Okay? So this gives us a number of different ways, and I've submitted to you two, relatively arbitrarily taken, Two different ways that we can meditate on the connection between wickedness and foolishness, or wickedness and ignorance, following the path of darkness, as Solomon so eloquently and poetically puts it in verse 19, is such that they don't even know over what they stumble. All right, and that brings to a conclusion then this fifth address to a son. Again, not terribly new in terms of material. We have the two paths, and we have also emerging earlier in this section, wisdom as the desired bride. The the father is looking at his son and desiring that he would be wed to wisdom, not wed to wickedness and foolishness, which we're going to see in chapter 5 really blossom forward. Okay, so let's pause there. Let's see if you have any thoughts of your own you'd like to add or any questions, anything I can make clear.
Everybody's okay. Everybody's still digesting turkey dinners, probably. (laughs) All right. Let's go on then to the sixth address to his son, which begins at chapter 4, verse 20. Again, the grammatical marker there, clearer perhaps in, in the Hebrew, I think so, than in the English. But as he says, my son, that's the marker of a new section. My son, be attentive to my words. We've talked at length about this, but just to kind of flesh this out and refresh your memory very briefly, we're talking to, you know, to people who are already converted, and we're talking about people who are already converted. So the son of Solomon here in this case, the literary son, which we put ourselves in that position, is already converted, is already has faith in Christ, has faith in Yahweh. And so now this admonition to be attentive is an admonition to the new man to put to death the old Adam in him and to strive. This is the, the source of all the active language in the scriptures about seeking God and knocking and um, pursuing and uh, following. Wherever you find this active language, we don't have to be embarrassed by it. We certainly don't need to change it so that's somehow a passive. We just need to recognize that this is being spoken to regenerate people who have been set free by the word to pursue that word, and in this case, to be attentive to it. Okay, We can, of course, discuss that more as we need to, but again, just a reminder that we don't need to be afraid of these active words, and, that, and to believe just what they say. That God would have us be attentive. So, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. You can think of our Lord summarizing this so well. Take care how you hear. For the measure you use will be measured back unto you and still all the more fully. That is to say, what you put into hearing, you will get out of it. But because God is who he is and is super abundant in grace and mercy, He will not let it just be, hey, you put in a three, you get back a three. You put in a five, you get back a five. But rather, you put in a three, and he will give you back a three, and then fill your cup over with even more, because that's who he is. But he does here, um, as our Lord himself does, desire us to sow that we might reap, to be attentive, to incline our ears to practice that attentiveness every time his word is read or proclaimed. Okay, we'll go back and touch on some of these themes in, at the end in summary, but just to continue on, verse 22. For they are, and here we're referring to his words and his sayings, for they are life to those who find them. 
and healing to all their flesh. So, again, we find that within the Word of God is not only the ability to bestow life, life that exists even where physical death might transpire, a life deeper than death, but also and including healing. There is a healing nature to God's Word. And if we were to really try to pinpoint the the very place at which that healing touches first and foremost, it would be the conscience. The conscience is healed first and foremost by the absolution, but then the conscience begins to be healed as it is informed and reformed in accordance with God's word. So that the conscience isn't offended where it should not be offended, nor is the conscience dull where it should not be dull. But because it is healed and brought back into conformity with God's word, it is a healthy conscience. So your conscience can be disordered, very broadly speaking. Of course, it can be defiled by sin, but that's different than being disordered. That defilement can be set right by absolution, but it can be disordered in the sense that it can be overwrought. And uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ah, it'll come to me. Um, but it can, be, it can be scrupulous. That's the classic way they said. So scrupulosity, this idea of like, oh, well, I said hello to the store clerk, but I didn't smile wide enough when I did it. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Um, I thought, uh, <laughs> there's kind of a, I don't know, I'll, I'll do it anyway. So there, forgive us, Lord, for shallow thankfulness is the title of one of our hymns, and, I could, and it's unsingable, so uh, you probably, that's why you don't. But it also, the title itself is preposterous because it's pretty much scrupulosity. Forgive us, Lord, for shallow thankfulness. I mean, anyway. We're thankful, but just not quite thankful enough. Uh, Okay, scrupulosity, and then the other would be a deadened conscience. And that's a la Romans, he gives them over to their sins, so the conscience becomes calloused and deadened, and it doesn't uh, react when it should react. Extreme case might be like a sociopath or something like that, but even even less extreme, you can see someone progress from uh, a behavior is admittedly wrong okay, and to be avoided, and then they, the conscience becomes less healthy, and that behavior then is seen as wrong but should be accepted. And as the conscience continues to deaden, not really even wrong. And then, as the conscience continues to good, and as the conscience continues to dead, to be celebrated, you must celebrate it or else. So we've seen the corporate conscience of our country go this direction with all of the LGBTQ stuff. But individually, we know people in our lives who their conscience has been disordered in just this way. So along these two poles, the conscience can be disordered. The conscience is healed and rightly ordered when it's brought back into conformity with God's Word. And that's God's Word holistically, but if you were to, in fact, put a finer point on it, 
it is, uh, it is the, the law that forms that in us. And so the law itself, the content of God's word, the moral content of God's word, has a healing effect upon us. Does that make sense? Okay, so we see this life-giving and uh, motif as well as this healing motif brought to the fore in verse 22. Verse 23, keep, uh, the sense being guard, your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Now at the basic level, the most plain and basic level, you would simply say, okay, this is a physiological reality that your heart pumps blood to your body and keeps you alive. But deeper than that, as the heart receives from the Lord that which is life, we see that back in 22, for they are life to those who find them, the heart retains these things, retains life, And then from it flows the springs of life. Renewing the body, invigorating the body, making it active to serve neighbor, etc. This ultimately has its climax. Do you remember in John's Gospel where Jesus talks about uh, springs of living water flowing from the heart? So I've, I've grabbed just a snippet of that. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he, that is the Lord, said about the Spirit. So so I I think the ultimate fulfillment of a text like this is that it directs toward Christ, the one from whose heart flows the living waters, those waters that give us life. You can think of the woman at the well. You can think, though, also of the The temple the water flowing forth from the temple, and you can think of Christ, you can think of him having his side pierced by the spear that went up into his heart, and from his heart flows water and blood, that water that gives life, that living water flowing from him. And so I think that that is ultimately the reference of this text, or the referent of this text, but that this, insofar as we are made alive by Christ, And that water flows into us. It overflows from our hearts out onto the world as well. And so I don't think we're necessarily excluded from this, even on the deeper spiritual level of seeing the Holy Spirit, the life in the Word, given to us by Christ, filling our hearts in such a way that it flows out from us onto others. Okay, verse 24, put away from you crooked speech. We've formerly seen the path as crooked, so speech would accord with that crookedness. Deceitful, untrue, inaccurate, and put devious talk far from you. Misleading talk far from you. I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill by any stretch or, you know, somehow make this appear incredulous to you, but this verse probably has more relevance to us today than we could ever imagine. Because most of what's going on, particularly in the West, that's plaguing us, really comes down to crooked speech and devious talk. So you can think of the title 
uh, well-chosen of uh, Rod Dreher's book, Live Not by Lies, taken from, if I'm not mistaken, a speech by Solzhenitsyn, a survivor of Russian communism. But the evil that's taking place in our society today has its strength in crooked speech and devious talk. So uprooting, identifying that and uprooting that is in fact the task. And, and that is going to require us to be critical thinkers but, and then bold once we see it. For example, it would be very common even for us in our, in our speaking amongst each other to say something like, well, that person is a homosexual. Point in fact, there's no such thing as a homosexual. There are men and there are women. That's biblically what's created. And biblically what's created is a man for a woman and a woman for a man. Anything else we can talk about a deviancy, we can talk about, a, we can talk about an attraction, that is sinful or misguided or disordered, but we can't identify someone as a homosexual. There's no such identification. So that would be one concrete example of crooked speech and devious talk from which spring a whole host of evils. So increasingly, we want to discover this devious talk and simply refuse to use it refuse to think in its categories. And that's the task at hand, again, to live not by lies. So if someone wants you to call, you know, if a, someone with a beard wants you to call him a her or a they or a zeer or whatever might be in fashion, you have to politely refrain. That would be another concrete example of putting away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far away from you. So this is the Lord speaking to your heart about how you use your lips and your tongue. And do you participate in the perpetuation of the lies or do you stand contrary to the lies insofar as you are able speaking the truth? And there will be a cost. There, there's always a cost. We as Lutherans have gotten hyper-fixated on the 16th century, and that's fine because it's justification, it's a big deal. But if you study church history, I mean, really you could accomplish this probably about an hour on Wikipedia, you'll realize that the battle throughout church history has not just been the battle of justification. In every age it has been different. And the golden thread that runs through all of it is truth versus lies. Christ who is the truth versus Satan who is the liar. And that can be true whether we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, whether we're talking about the divinity of Christ, whether we're talking about the role of the will in conversion, whether we're talking about the piety of the church and whether or not we should pray to the saints or whether or not there are intercessors or whether we're talking about justification by grace through faith apart from works, whether we're talking about rationalism and academia and its role 
in our lives as Christians, or whether we're talking about social issues and the attack on anthropology, and the human nature itself, such that we can no longer say what both the Bible and nature itself say, that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And man was made for woman and woman for man. So all throughout the ages, it is a battle of truth versus lies. And it's important for us to simply identify that and identify our place and role in that. Okay, so put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Verse 25, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Again, if you think of the path as being straight, your eyes are going to be straight. Your gaze is going to be straight. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Okay, so this is in some respects just an admonition to be thoughtful to remember who you are as a Christian and be thoughtful as you go along in life and particularly as you make decisions. Ponder, be thoughtful in regard to the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. They'll be sure if you're walking in that path, that way that is Christ and his wisdom. Verse 27 brings this admonition to a close. Do not swerve to the right or to the left, turn your foot away from evil. And again, reminiscent here of our Lord's sermon on the broad and narrow path. And the narrowness of the path speaks to its difficulty. The difficulty in this life is not swerving this way or that. The difficulty in this life is not being whoever you want to be or being true to yourself or all of this other nonsense and shenanigans that our young people are being deceived of. The true difficulty is to walk the path that the Lord sets before you and to conform yourself to His will. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been tried and found difficult. (laughs) (laughs) and how true that is. But that's great encouragement. I mean, if you find the Christian life difficult and living the Christian life an ongoing challenge, that's exactly where you want to be. Ironically, about the worst thing you want to be is what most of the psychologists these days and spiritual gurus these days tell you to be. Just be self-actualized. Be okay with yourself. Whatever you are is good. Whatever you feel is good. Whatever you think is good. Just be yourself and be okay. And uh, Christianity is precisely the opposite of that. It's a spiritual war against one's self and one's selfish inclinations and and passions and desires. And it is a continual striving to be conformed into the image of wisdom, the image of Christ, and to walk in his ways, in his forgiveness, in his mercy. But then that takes shape and form in terms of how we conduct ourselves and how we use our bodies in this time and place. And that probably brings us to our final reflection on this section, or at least the final reflection I have for you on this section. I'm sure it's 
in truth, inexhaustible. And that's that if you go through this with an eye toward um, the particular language and theme that he's using in this section, you can see all manner of reference to the body. So just to run through it very quickly. Verse 20, incline your ear. Verse 21 speaks of sight, the eyes. Um, Latter half of verse 21, the heart. 22, all their flesh, referent to the body. Again, 23, the heart. 24, speech and talk, the mouth. 25, the eyes and the gaze. 26, the feet. And 27, the foot. So, a meditation on the wholeness of the body in harmony with wisdom. And that obviously was a theme that he used to organize his thoughts in this address or admonition, the sixth to a son. Okay, no doubt I've said some provocative things. So, if you have any questions or comments, any subtle corrections, I'm happy to entertain those. Not too obvious of corrections, hopefully. No, just teasing. A uh, couple of hands. Uh, one thing, and maybe it goes back to your earlier points about the concrete nature of the commands, you know, listen to my words. But, right, believe in me, listen to my words. It seems to me we, we fall into this trap in Christendom, and that is we want to believe in Jesus. Now, we don't want to do what he says, but we want to believe in Jesus. <laughs> Right, so you—I mean, you see that with sacraments all the time. People say, "Oh, I—I I don't want to have faith in like bread and wine. I want to have faith in Christ." Yeah, you know, I don't want to have faith in in you know water. I want to have faith in Christ. I don't want to, you know, and you take it to the Old Testament. I don't have faith in a stick or a snake on a stick. I want to have faith in God. Mm-hmm. Well, the way you do that is by listening to what He says. Right, right. that's the way you have faith in anyone. Right. It's, by, it's like, oh, yeah, uh, I have great faith in you, Pastor. I believe you're right up there. You, there you are. I believe in you. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, I'm not going to listen to the, what you're saying is crap, but, I, you know. <laughs> yeah, well said. Well said. And, you know, there's, there's a way in which um, our, our view as Lutherans, if we allow the law and gospel frame to work against the, what the scriptures themselves say, which is a mistake on our part, okay, not a problem with law and gospel as such, but a mistake on our part, we can end up denuding the scriptures and silencing what is a good and loving admonition from the Father. Okay, So, you know, by way of analogy, let's say that my son, you know, does something wrong and comes to me penitently and I forgive him, okay, and he's feeling my love and we're reconciled and everything's good, and I say, hey, I don't want you to go out back and, and play in this area because I saw some scorpions infesting that area, so I don't want you to go back there. Is this an overbearing law that I've placed upon my son? In telling my son not to go play with the scorpions, am I somehow like 
inciting him to in fact do it because I know his sinful nature and I know he's going to rebel against me. No, all of this is nonsense. I don't, I'm telling him not to do this. Why? Because I don't want him to get hurt. And see, this is a way in which we have to, if we're going to comprehend the scriptures, we have to comprehend these admonitions from the Lord that do in fact fall in the category of the law is they're good for us. They prevent us from falling into harm and danger. They're wholesome and they're right. And so that's kind of the other, or at least maybe dovetails with what you're saying is, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, I, I love my father. Um, I'm not going to do anything he says. Or I love my father, but I'll only do those things that he says that I think are gracious toward me. I'll only pay attention to those. I love my father and I know his character is such that if he commands me to do X or Y, it's because that's good. All, and so then everything that he gives is good and we are trying to conform ourselves into that good for our good and for the good of everyone else. But there's something there in terms of how one trusts the Lord who absolves. But if you trust the Lord to absolve you from your sins, you should trust that he has your good in mind when he says, do not sin. That's precisely the, the-, the theology of John the Evangelist when he writes in his first epistle, for example, I say these things to you, I write these things to you, that you may not sin. If you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So it's part and parcel of growing into trust. And that not that exactly what faith is when we talk about faith? We're not talking about the existence of something, like I have faith that Santa Claus exists. I have belief that he exists. That happens to be misplaced faith or misplaced belief. But we're rather talking about uh, that Latin term fiducia, when we say faith or believe in, to trust. And if you trust the one who absolves, then trust also the one who guides or exhorts. So it's a holistic kind of thing, right? Please. Well, you said earlier about corporate, um, the corporate following of what is right. And I think more and more, maybe it's because I'm now older when I was younger, though, it seemed that we listened more to wisdom or to people who had experience or to scripture. And now it's like they're inured to it. It's like younger people want to make up their own rules, and it all works part and parcel with the current dictate of society. And I don't know how we get away from that because it's an evil that's just working in concert. And um, I see it all around me. (laughs) I see it in others, and I see it with myself. Right. We still have respect for people who have done things before us. We look at Scripture and we say, and yet there are people in other churches who say we're too rigid or we're too, too exacting with Scripture that really God is love and we shouldn't worry about that. Yeah, right, right. And that's a, that's a terrible uh, false dichotomy. That God is love and the scriptures that he wrote are rigid and unloving. Mm-hmm. That's a false dichotomy, isn't it? 
So if God who is is love and he wrote the scriptures, then the scriptures are love. And if that doesn't fit our definition of love, it's because our definition of love is wrong. Yeah. Please. Yes, Pastor. Uh, so the answer to Alice's uh, concern is we have the internet now, <laughs> which I've used to uh, confirm Dale's point in that uh, the Chesterton quote is actually even uh, sharper and more merciless. Oh, thank you. So if the internet is correct, it says here, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. has been found difficult and left untried. <laughs> right, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, very good. Very good. Right, so, um, you know, encourage... Oh, I see a hand up front here. Oh, okay. Um, in verse 24, um, the study Bible indicates that crooked speech is something you should avoid and that the devious talk is other people that you're trying to keep away from you um, is what it says in, in the guide. Um, I didn't get that so much from when you went over it. And also, how do we decide devious talk when in this day and age we can't agree on what's a lie and what's an alternative truth? Hmm, yeah, okay. Well, okay, so let's take the latter first. Where God's word speaks, there's the truth, right? So that's what we want to conform ourselves to. And very much of what we have to do is see the way that people are using language in our day to manipulate, and particularly where it's not grounded in any truth. I mean, you can, you can see this, uh, I think, just fundamentally that the project, and it's always, this is always the project, okay? And that's where there's nothing new under the sun. The project is always a war against reality. That's always the case. It happens to be the case in our day and age that the reality is actually a physical, biological, manifest reality as well. So we can use, as the early church fathers said, the two books, the book of the Bible and the book of nature itself, to make a case for the truth over and against the lies. So, I mean, for example, the uniqueness of the heterosexual union that can result in life, whereas a quote-unquote homosexual union cannot. That's something from the book of nature, which bears itself out. We can also look at statistics and mental and physical health of those engaged in said behaviors, and it doesn't go well for them. That's the book of nature that bears out a truth. So we can use nature, and nature is going to be more effective in our argument against or with those who don't give any credence to the book of God's word. So we need to become acquainted with that other book again. But we can use both of these books in order to fight off, stave off the lies which are always contrary to reality. The other part is, yeah, I can, I mean, no doubt about this. I don't have any problem with the, with the um, study notes take on this verse and the idea that 
what's being communicated here is little more than the eighth commandment. I do have just a little bit of an allergy that everything's got to be shoved into these category, these catechetical categories, because I don't think it's that simple. And I think if we just go, oh well, that's the eighth commandment. You all know that. Uh, we're really stopping ourselves from seeing a deeper kind of wisdom here. And then maybe as we follow that wisdom, understanding the Eighth Commandment more deeply than we previously did. So this idea of putting devious talk away from you as not hearing the gossip of other people, a fine application of it. A fine application of it. Okay, um, anything else? Yes, please. In listening to issues streaming this morning, I heard a pastor make the comment that there will always be a tension between good and evil. We get, sometimes get tired of the tension, mm-hmm. but the tension will always exist. And people default to one narrative or whatever, yeah. just avoid the tension. Yeah, exactly. And there's a rest that's found in Christ, and that's where we're to go for our rest. But it's never a rest such that you take off the armor of God. (laughs) Put on the full armor of God, take your rest in Christ, go out to battle, take your rest in Christ. Uh, What the world wants you to do is set down your armor and self-actualize and walk the path of quote-unquote enlightenment, which is just getting along with everyone and love is love, man, and live and let live. And uh, that's that's a disaster. That's a road that leads to destruction, and it's really the broad path in our culture. And a couple other little things. Um, well, Christ is the Word, and, you, and the word, words itself, themselves are being attacked. And I've thought of this, that when you cook, you can marry flavors, sweet and sour and everything. When you add salt to salt, you don't marry, you just add. There's no marrying going on. It's marrying is putting things together that are different. So anyway, uh, I've thought of this. Instead of saying LGBTQ, you can say A, B, C, D, E, and everybody knows who you're referring to, but refusing to use those letters. And then also creating a universal pronoun with the word she and he and it in it, and it would be take the letters you want out of she and Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, in whatever ways you see fit to fight the fight. <laughs> you know, and, and again, the point isn't the point isn't to nitpick people, least of all our brothers and sisters in Christ. The point isn't to say this haha, I got you kind of thing. You you use the word homosexual when there's no such thing, aren't you stupid? That's not the point. The point is to realize the deeper truth, and so that even as you slip and other people slip in and out of the casual usage of words, you recall the deeper truth, the deeper frame, and you can rely on that as necessary to enlighten um, as you go about your vocational life. Yeah. Please. If I can just add to that about, uh, I, I did catch that when you said there's no such thing as a homosexual. What you meant was not, there's no such thing as a person who engages in homosexual activity. Just like you wouldn't say there's no such thing as a murderer, right? Sure. You know, or yeah. there's no such thing as a liar. The, the difficulty is we say, oh, that person's a homosexual. So what do you expect? Of course he's going to engage in homosexual behavior. Exactly. Right? You know, Charles Manson, what do you want? He's a murderer. Don't get on his case. You know? <laughs> yeah. Bill Clinton, yeah. he's a liar. Don't get on his case. Right. You know? That's the problem is when you use the term 
to say this is the nature of the person and therefore they're excused, mm-hmm. right? Versus yeah, exactly. saying, oh, yeah, they engage in that activity. Of course, they're homosexuals in that respect, but not in the respect of, oh, they get off the hook. Yes, thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Exactly, exactly as I meant it. You have what you have are men and women. God makes man and God makes woman. And then you have ordered or disordered thoughts, ordered or disordered words, ordered or disordered deeds. Okay? And that's that's what you have. So if you have a man who thinks he's a woman, that's a disordered thought. If he has a doctor mutilate himself, he doesn't magically become a woman. He's now a mutilated man. And that's a disordered deed that stems from a disordered thought, right? And the idea that I have to call him a woman is a disorder, is demanding or compelling me to a disordered word, a lie. So we can talk, that's, that's properly speaking to get away from the ontology. The ontology is man and woman. And then you can talk about ordered or disordered relationships. And now we're talking in a much clearer biblical frame about all of this stuff. Yeah. So thank you very much. Please. Yeah. Yeah, well said. It's time-consuming and challenging. But it, but it is, nonetheless, the assurance of God's word that there is, in fact, light and darkness. That there is, in fact, truth and error. That you can know the truth. That you can walk in the light. And that that's what God is calling us to. And that's not a matter or an act of self-righteousness. It's even a matter of an act of self-condemnation as you see the disordered nature of your flesh with its own thoughts, words, and deeds. And as you condemn that, and as you walk in repentance over and against that, as you confess that, are absolved of it, seek to daily put it to death, and as the Catechism would say, uh, do you want to do better? Yes. Right? Okay, so thank you for those reflections. Okay, next week we will get into the seventh address of a son, chapter 5. And the goal will be to get through all of chapter 5. Here, finally, what comes to four is the image of the foolish or adulterous woman who is enticing the son to join her which will result in his destruction. And again, in the background will be the father's choice for his son, not being this woman, but the woman who is wisdom and truth. The Lord be with you.